Hi, I'm David Crow, and this is episode 251 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com, crow with an E. Join the discussion and like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Listen Tuesdays at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on prn.fm, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other programs. You can listen to any of the last five episodes over the phone by dialing 701-719-0990 and following the instructions. prn.fm has voicemail at 862-800-6805. So leave a message or question. Make sure you leave the name of the show. And if you dial either of these numbers, remember that long-distance charges may apply. You can make a one-time donation to the expenses of the show via PayPal using the email david.crow@theinfectiousmyth.com or monthly donations at patreon.com or liberapay.com, where we are, Infectious Smith, one word. We appreciate all our listeners, but if you want the show to continue to grow and improve, consider paying a small amount for the information that you're gleaning, for the support you get for some non-mainstream ideas, and the challenges to others. And I, I really hope that the coronavirus coverage, both in the audio podcasts and in the documents that I've been producing, are useful to you. I've been getting a lot of comments and guest suggestions, as well as financial support. So thank you so much for everything you're doing. And please continue to recommend this show to your friend. We're addressing a very technical subject this week, RT-PCR. I think if you sit and listen in a quiet place and perhaps play one or two parts over again, you can learn a tremendous amount about this technology, which is currently being used as pretty much the only test for COVID-19 infection. Professor Stephen Buston is a world-renowned expert on quantitative PCR, and his research focuses on translating molecular techniques into practical, robust, and reliable tools for clinical and diagnostic use. He received a PhD in molecular genetics from Trinity College in Dublin, working on fungal and bacterial pathogens. Apart from numerous scientific papers, review articles, and book chapters aimed at improving the reproducibility and robustness of real-time quantitative PCR, Professor Buston has authored, authored the books A to Z or A to Z of quantitative PCR in 2004, The PCR Revolution uh, in 2011, and PCR Technology 2013. He's been an expert witness in the UK High Court and also in a court in Washington, DC. He helped develop the MIQE guidelines that we will talk about today for use in reporting of qPCR and digital PCR. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, thank you for taking some time out of what in England is, uh, is a holiday. That's right, bank holiday. <laughs> yes, in Canada we can't decide. I think it's a federal holiday, but not a provincial holiday. So if you work for the government, the federal government, you get it off, and if you work for the provincial government, you don't. So, right. Mm -hmm. um, so I think everybody knows that um, RT-PCR, and, and we'll get into more of the definition of this, is is really important in the current coronavirus situation because it's being used as the testing methodology. And I don't think too many people understand the first thing about it, except those skilled in the art, as they say. So I've divided the, tech, the discussion of the technology into four parts. So let me know if, if this makes sense. One, extraction of the RNA. Two, conversion to complementary DNA. 
three, PCR replication of DNA, and possibly four, sequencing. Okay. Um, sequencing is probably uh, uh, not part of the RT-PCR. That is a separate, uh, RT-PCR is used for sequencing, but then sequencing is a separate technique. Right. I, I do have some questions about that. It's not like a core part. You can do those three parts. There's sort of, it, you have to do those first three parts, and the sequencing is kind of an optional thing that you, you yeah, may have exactly, Yes. Uh, you, you, the RT-QPCR itself is a, 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 a technique in itself. The RNA sequencing is a separate technique, which okay. uses RT-PCR. Okay, and I'll ask you some questions about that, I hope, uh, later. So one of the things I always found um, confusing, and you are very consistent in your use of, tech, um, of terminology, you talk about qPCR, quantitative PCR, which is real-time quantitative PCR, and then there's RT-QPCR, which is reverse transcriptase. Uh, PCR. Now, the problem is there's two RTs, and the reverse transcriptase, I understand, because that converts RNA to DNA, but what does the RT, a real-time PCR, mean? Well, um, the MITEI guidelines define this. Um, so RT-PCR simply means reverse transcription PCR. Real-time means that as opposed to a endpoint assay, where you would run a gel, and then look at the fluorescence that uh, comes from the gel that you're looking at, in real time, you are monitoring the, the reaction um, as the uh, PCR reaction progresses in real time. So you see an amplification plot that is um, that increases as you have more and more product being generated. And because it is in real time, it's called real-time PCR. Oh, okay, so uh, however you measure the amount of DNA, like it seems a lot of people are using fluorescence, then yes. at, at each cycle, you would say, okay, we have now we have this much fluorescence, now we have this much, and, and then right. you could graph the change over time. That's right. Okay, okay. That's, uh, that's pretty clear. Um, now, two other words that I think can be confusing, and I, I hope I'm going to get these right, <laughs> uh, are probe and primer. Um, so my understanding is a probe helps to detect the target RNA in the original sample, and the primer delimits the portion of the DNA that's to be replicated in the PCR step. Is that uh, correct? That is correct, but you can get a PCR reaction without a probe. So the primers themselves are sufficient to generate your PCR product, which you can then detect with a non-specific dye. Okay. The probe, the probe simply adds the additional specificity that um, makes you more confident that whatever uh, result you get is in fact the real result because you're detecting not a non-specific dye binding to something that might have given you an erroneous replication, but it has to be the actual application product that you're interested in. So probe is simply um, an additional insurance policy. It makes it more specific. Yes, and this occurs during the RNA extraction phase? No, no, no the, probe okay. is in, the probe is entirely during the PCR step itself. As well as the primers? The primers are also at the PCR stage, yes. Okay, okay, that does make it a bit confusing. So the primers are mandatory, you can't do PCR without them. Um, no. But the, the probe is, uh, is a, a, as you say, extra in insurance. It is, it is, it is optional. And for, for diagnostic assays, you would use a probe. For research purposes, um, you would not always use a probe because obviously having a probe adds to the cost of the assay. Okay. Um, 
Now, one of the things you're very concerned about, like you have a 2017 paper, which is is um, mostly where I, I learned about some of the issues of RT-PCR. And you start by talking about the crisis of replication in, in science. And you referred to um, a situation where there were five studies that were attempted to be replicated. Uh, two were able to be replicated, one could not be, and two were uninterpretable. I wasn't exactly sure what that meant. Um, but you seem to be saying that there's a lot of use of RT-PCR that um, you know, produces numbers and people use those numbers, but if you go back um, to try to do the same thing, you may get different numbers, different results. Yes, in, 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 in principle, that is correct. Um, depending on um, how you carry out the, the RT-PCR, uh, how you prepare your samples, how you, which enzymes you use, um, which protocols you use, and how you interpret your data, you can, uh, can end up with wildly different results. Okay, so if we start to talk about the RNA extraction, um, mm -hmm. you talked about co-purification of inhibitors, and I assume these are inhibitors of um, DNA polymerase? Yes, um, both both reverse transcriptase and the attack polymerase using the PCR are somewhat sensitive to uh, inhibition from products or from from compounds that are commonly present in in biological samples. Okay, so th so that would mean that if you don't do your RNA extraction properly or carefully, that you could end up with less DNA because you're inhibiting it. Uh, through something let, that you took from the sample? No, let, less RNA, no. What happens is that you may end up with the same amount of RNA or DNA for that matter, but right. because the enzymes are inhibited, it, you apparently have less than you thought you had. Right, right. So it is an enzyme inhibition. Okay. Um, you also talk about the secondary structure of RNA. Is that, is that kind of the curving and folding, just like in proteins, that RNA is uh, not? Yes. Uh, most people, when they, when they think of an RNA molecule, think of a kind of a, a string, a linear string mm -hmm. of, of, of RNA. And uh, in real life, um, RNA, including the uh, genome of the um, SARS-CoV-2, is extremely complex, has an extremely complex secondary structure with, with sequences uh, uh, quite distant coming together and uh, forming double-stranded regions of the RNA. And this is important because obviously when you're trying to uh, put a primer into your uh, reaction that will then prime your reverse transcription, if it happens to bind to a region that is extensively, uh, uh, it has extensive secondary structure, then it will have difficulty uh, getting in there and carrying out the reverse transcription step. So again, uh, it can affect the, the sensitivity of the assay. Okay, and, and there's no reliable way to straighten the RNA out to remove um, the secondary structure? This is where the assay design becomes so important, and that's why you can get such different results with different tests. Um, if you and I design um, a, a two different um, RT-PCR reactions, and we place our primers into different areas, and I happen to place mine into an area that has extensive secondary structure, and you happen to place yours into an area that is, say, in a, in a, in a loop structure, 
then your primer will be much more uh, sent or will allow much more sensitive reverse transcription because you get more, it'll be easy to get into the, right. into the RNA. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so you now we get a different result based on the fact that mine was a poor assay, so I don't, I don't detect anything, come up with a negative result, whereas you are fairly efficient and come up with a positive result. And so our results are different because of that. But I, I mean, I might, is it is it that because I know about the secondary structure in this hypothetical case, or is it just that I'm lucky that I chose no, it? Yeah. So there are, are predictions, there are programs that predict various secondary structures. Okay. Now, they are not ideal, but they're better than nothing. And uh, we published uh, a long time ago some, some work on this. And clearly, if, if you use these predictive models, then you can get better results. It doesn't always work. But in general, if you're careful to, to try and find a loop area, then your assay will be more, uh, more sensitive. Okay. Um, you talk about the degradation of nucleic acids during preparation or storage. I mean, what types of um, you know, storage uh, could do this? Is it you know, freezing? Uh, like, what are the things that could result in, in say, if you, if you store the, the sample for a year, maybe frozen or something that could result in degradation. I assume we're talking about RNA rather than mm -hmm. DNA. Yes, right. yes. Um, well, the, the, the common health view is that RNA is very unstable. So um, if you um, make RNA and, and freeze and thaw it too many times, it will degrade it. Um, okay. if, if, if you keep RNA at room temperature, it will degrade. Um, if you heat it, it will certainly degrade. In real life, it's not as simple as that. It depends on the conditions. Um, so I was involved with a, um, with a trial in New Zealand, a murder trial. And there it turned out that RNA, as long as it's kept dry, can, can remain amplifiable and detectable for you know, 20 years. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not, it's not a, as always in biology, it's not a 100% yes or no answer. In general, you try and make sure that you extract RNA as carefully as possible and store it as carefully as possible. But once you have a good RNA prep, then unless you heat it, um, keep it keeping it in the freezer will, will, will keep it um, stable. It, it, will, it will not um, degrade uh, substantially. Okay, you refer to freezing and thawing. Like, uh, presumably, yeah. you, you wouldn't thaw it more than once. Right, no, what, what, what we would regularly do, or what, what we tend to do, is when we make an RNA prep, we would aliquot it and then um, take the first aliquot, make cDNA from this, and store the cDNA and keep the original uh, aliquots frozen. And if we need to get back to that prep, then we will go back to a fresh prep. So we try okay. not to do it more than two or three times. Okay, okay. Um, you talk about uh, an RNA, RNA integrity number, RIN. Um, RIN, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and you're saying this is very important that it, it is above five. I think you you said so. What does no, that well, mean? Well, this is a colleague um, that published this. Um, most people um, tend not to look, or most papers tend not to, to look at the integrity of their RNA. So people will extract the RNA and then immediately go into a cDNA synthesis. Mm -hmm. Some people use um, a process which uses uh, something called a bioanalyzer, um, which is an instrument that looks at uh, the uh, 18 and 28 sRNA peaks. And uh, has, there's an algorithm that um, uh, looks at an electrophorogram of, of the RNA and 
uh, depending on the ratio of 28 and 18s and various other small um, uh, squiggles in the electroferogram, it comes up with a, a RNA integrity number. So right. 10 would mean the RNA is the best quality possible. And for example, if you're extracting RNA from a, from a tissue culture, um, you would, you'd expect you get a RIN number of 10. If you expect RNA, expect RNA from an old degraded sample, it might be a RIN of one, two, three, or four. And then there's all kinds of shades of gray in between. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, this, this matters mostly if you're trying to quantify your RNA. If mm -hmm. you're simply looking for a yes or no answer, obviously, if it's totally degraded, you'll get nothing. But if you're trying to just see if it's there or not, then there will be very little difference between a RIN 7 and a RIN 10. Whereas if mm. you're trying, for example, have a viral load, then it could make a difference. It, uh, yes. Certainly, yeah. Um, and if you're trying to compare, uh, I mean, let's say that you're trying to compare fresh samples from today where maybe you have a high RNA integrity and then maybe there's some stored samples with a lower R, uh, RIN, does that cause problems that you're um, comparing things that have different RNA integrity levels? Yes, it, it might if it hasn't been stored correctly and if you are going for very um, accurate quantification. If you're going for is it there or not, then it is less important. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so let's move on to the reverse transcription step. Um, so this converts the RNA to complementary DNA, and this is necessary because PCR only replicates DNA, not capable of replicating RNA. Um, but TAC polymerase is not very efficient at replicating RNA. It can do it, but it does it very badly. Okay. So, um, uh, yes, so that's why you have to use a, a special enzyme called reverse inscriptors, yes. Right. Um, so one of the problems... Uh, you referred to was the lack of reproducibility of low copy numbers. So if there's a small amount of RNA, um, sorry, turn that off. If there's a small amount of RNA, um, you might get an unpredictable amount of complementary DNA. I think that's what you're saying. Um, the RT enzyme is not a very efficient, uh, and it is not very efficient at converting RNA into DNA. So. If you get 50% uh, conversion, um, you'd be happy. Mm -hmm. So if you have one copy, you may or may not detect that. If you have five copies, you may or may not detect it. And again, the problem is not so much if you're trying to see whether something's there or not, which you are, which you tend to be with the diagnostic assays for pathogens. It is more important if you're trying to quantify accurately the amount of, of, of RNA that was there in the first place, which you would do, for example, for gene expression studies, mm -hmm. or if you're interested in very accurate viral load or fungal load or whatever pathogen load and quantification, that's where it becomes important. Right. Um, and and, and so just one other thing, and different reverse inscriptases have different properties, and so some are better than others. So that's yes. Additional problem. Well, you referred to a factor. I think, if I read this right, a factor of up to one hundred in the in the production of DNA. Yes. Complementary DNA. Um, um, Mikael Kubister, who is a Swedish scientist, published this uh, a long time ago now, probably um, fifteen or sixteen years ago, where they showed that um, you can get a, a significant differences in in the amount of of of, of CNA being produced. Yes. Um, 
I think uh, our, our teas have become better since then. And the most more, we've published a few studies recently, and uh, I certainly would say that a tenfold certainly is still is still something that can happen. Yes. Right. I mean, that seems like a really big problem if you're trying to quantify, right? If you yeah. if you have a tenfold difference, um, I mean, that's that's what a couple of PCR uh, that's um, three PCR cycles about, right? Yes. Um, again, as always, it's not as straightforward as that. No. <laughs> so, some tests, some assays, you don't really see that, and others you do see it, and. Um, what what has been shown is that uh, the polymerase um, has a preference for certain um, nucleotides at the three prime end of the primers. Mm -hmm. So so some primers seem to prime more efficiently than others. And if we have two assays and we just happen to have a different three prime base, then you could get a difference based on that. And and so that is the kind of um, uh, uh, difficulty that you face when you generalize. Um, in, in what we have recommended in our multi guidelines, and in fact uh, was recommended before that uh, by Mikhail in, in one of his papers, is that you do more than one RT. You see, the PCR itself is very uh, reproducible. It's the RT that makes that causes the problems. So what most people do is they take uh, uh, a RNA, do a single reverse inscription, and then they do multiple PCR reactions from that. Mm -hmm. What he recommends, and what we put into the Mikey guidelines is, you should do two or three RTs, because that's where the variability is, and that then gives you an, a measure of the uncertainty in your data. Okay, um, so so you do uh, reverse transcriptase maybe three times, and then you do the PCR, and you're going to get different numbers from those yes. PCRs, and that kind of tells you which of your uh, reverse transcriptase enzymes or, or setups, maybe other variables, is the most efficient. Yes, but let me stress again, this is when we're talking about quantification and, and, and usually when we're looking at gene expression where people are trying to show fairly small differences. For um, pathogens, it is less crucial because whether you have, you know, a hundred or a thousand probably doesn't make much difference uh, uh, as long as you can detect it reliably. Uh, right. So, oh, we'll, 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 uh, We'll, we'll get to that in, in PCR because I have some questions about uh, choosing mm -hmm. the cycle number. Um, okay, so so we've is established that reverse transcription is an important step and it, it's got some problems with uh, reproducibility and the amount of material that gets produced can differ quite um, a bit. So one of the, if we go on to the PCR step and this is the cyclical duplication of DNA. I mean, in theory, uh, I mean, let's talk about this first. In in theory, if you started with one uh, DNA strand, um, then on the, the first cycle, you'd end up with two, and then it would be powers of two from then on. Like, how close does PCR adhere to, you know, an exact doubling at each step? Yeah, so this is, you're talking about PCR efficiency, um, which again, in the Mikey guidelines, we uh, stress that uh, it needs to be something that's reported by authors uh, of papers. And again, a lot, most people don't do that. Mm -hmm. It is crucial. It is absolutely crucial because um, obviously if you, have, if, if you uh, uh, double your um, the amount of target or uh, amplification product during each cycle, you will end up with a much greater um, uh, sensitivity than if you only have a 50% efficiency. Mm -hmm. So um, if you want to be certain, 
that your uh, that a negative result is negative, then you need to know about the efficiency of your PCR reaction. And the efficiency of the PCR depends on lots of different things. It's fairly easy to measure. And um, as I say, because it is an exponential amplification process, it is critical that you get as close to 100% as possible. Right. I mean, one of the phrases I've heard um, about PCR is that errors uh, also multiply exponentially. Yes. Yes. If, if you have an 80% efficiency, then you have uh, a significant difference uh, in, in your end result, or can have a significant difference, particularly if you're comparing two different uh, uh, two different people's assays. So if mine is 100% and yours is 80%, then we have a problem in the results you're going to end up with, yes. Right. So what I've seen uh, with the coronavirus testing is that they, they choose um, a cycle number. I've seen 36 and 37. I haven't seen it published very much. Yeah. Um, and if you um, obtain uh, sufficient DNA by that cycle, it's considered positive, and if you don't, it's considered negative. Yeah. Uh, it, do, is there any, I mean, that seems kind of arbitrary. It's and absolute nonsense. Yes, it's absolute nonsense. Well, it makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. And another problem um, is that if there are quantification problems, then in effect, it's like your boundary moves, right? Like if you yes. say you had 50% efficiency in your PCR and you had 37 and you had 100% efficiency in 37, those are two completely different numbers in, in, in reality. Yes. yes. Is there, would there be a better way to determine, because as you're saying, the question is really very simple. It, it, you might not care about the viral load. You want to know, does this person have this virus or whatever or not? So yes. is there a different way to do it apart from choosing an arbitrary um, cycle number? Okay, so let, let's just go back to the arbitrary cycle number. It depends on a, a lot of different things. First, the different instruments give you different cycle numbers. Um, different um, PCR master mixes can give you different cycle numbers. Um, different lots of probes can give you different cycle numbers. So the cycle number per se, is not a good measure. Um, the second point is that for most instruments, once you get above a cycle of about 35, um, of all instruments really, then you start worrying about the reliability of your, of your result because that would be roughly equivalent to a single copy. So you would hope, or you, what you want to do is you want to be certain that, or you want to be trying to ensure that the results you get are in the 20 to 30s. And um, unless you have uh, an idea of the efficiency of your PCR and the absence of inhibition, uh, it is very difficult to be certain uh, of what your result represents, unless it's uh, you know, very clear cut, I get bucket loads of target. So, so my suggestion is, and something I'm uh, trying to establish is, if you add uh, an RNA spike into your um, RNA before your reverse transcription, mm -hmm. then what you would do is you would reverse transcribe both the coronavirus target, say, if that's your right. target, plus the spike. Mm -hmm. Now, because you're putting in a very a defined known quantity of spike, you know what cycle CQ to expect at the end of the run. 
Right. And that will depend on the particular uh, reagents used or the instrument used. But once you establish that, it will be reasonably consistent for you in your lab. It will be different in my lab. Okay, so, so, I, so I, might, I might get, you know, 23 as, as the number I'm going to use because of yes. my system. Somebody else might get 25. Right. And that's okay because we're, we, we have like a yardstick um, for the different systems. Uh, yes. But I, I mean... What I have and seen. If, sorry, I can continue. So, so let's so let's say we get a, a CQ. I get twenty three. You got twenty five for, for for that spike. But we know if we had added, if we, if we hadn't added sample, we would have got twenty. Then we know there's some inhibition in that sample. Mm. If we get what we expect, and then we can delect, uh, uh, relate directly the, the the CQ we're getting for the virus relative to the spike we've put in and come up with a number that is now comparable between you and between me and that's a meaningful number right although uh, i mean there still are some differences like you you said there is um based on the the specific um bases close to i think as you said the three prime end uh, the there there could be some differences of, of efficiency so the the what you spiked it with and the actual virus might not behave in exactly the same way no, but it would be sufficiently um, accurate for, for the purposes of determining a, an approximate viral load. Okay. Um, is if you cycle too many times, can you start to get like a ghost uh, production of DNA? Yeah. It, again, it depends what your assay is. In principle, um, using a probe, you shouldn't. But in practice, mm -hmm. of course, you might. Yes. Yes, and, and so if you were to go to, say, uh, 40 cycles, you might get a positive result, but it might be a false positive in that, in that your PCR has just started to string bases together. I would be very unhappy about uh, a 40-cycle PCR. <laughs> there's, there's, I don't know if you know this, but there's a British um, recommendation for coronavirus testing that seems to indicate that every part of England can do what they like in terms of choosing a cycle number. And they say, if your cycle number is over 40, then it needs to go for further testing. But I was surprised that yeah. anybody would do that. No, I think that the CQ by itself, and again, we've published this, the CQ by itself is quite meaningless. Mm -hmm. You have to have other parameters that, that you can define before the CQ means anything. Right. I haven't seen, again, the, in the two papers I've seen that have published the CQ that they used, one defined 36 as the cutoff for positive, and then I think 37 to 39 were considered indeterminate, requiring more testing, and then one used 37 as the cutoff uh, with no indeterminate. Um, I, would be, I would be very unhappy about that, and uh, it, this would be totally instrument and reagent and probe dependent. Um, so, yeah and protocol dependent for that matter. I think uh, a, a kind of a CQ on its own doesn't really mean an awful lot. Okay, um, a couple other things that you talk about. You talk about hot start systems and the, these seem to be systems that keep the reagents warm so that when you throw samples in, there's no delay, it just starts. No, no, hot, hot, hot start means that the polymerase is inactive at room temperature. Mm -hmm. Because obviously if you throw primers, uh, and uh, DNA or RNA together with the polymerase at room temperature, the polymerase will have some activity. And because the primers can bind non-specifically, 
you might get a background based on the fact that you're getting some non-specific polymerization at room temperature. Mm-hmm. So what they've done many, well, okay, we, I, and we're not talking about when I started this, but many years ago, they developed um, a, a, a hot start system where you can use either a chemical modification or an antibody that binds to the polymerase and, and inactivates it at room temperature. And the hot start simply means that before you do your PCR, you do a half a minute to 10 minute um, heating at 95 of the polymerase, and that activates it and removes, destroys the antibody or, or, or certainly allows the, the polymerase to have activity. And, and then uh, the first cycle then starts when the um, annealing temperature goes down to the correct annealing temperature and you, you reduce, significantly reduce the amount of non-specific primer you would get. Okay, so this is, uh, I guess I misinterpreted this. I, I thought you were saying hot start introduced problems, but you're saying hot start was developed to remove these problems of polymerase yeah. activity at, at room temperature. And, right. and what would polymerase activity at room temperature mean? That, that it's, it's actually starting to put together a DNA string? Uh, yes. Um, I can't remember, did I publish or not? I've, I've got the data. Uh, what happens is if you take uh, two primers, uh, DNA, and a DNA polymerase that does not have hot start capability and mm-hmm. just leave them on ice, right. um, then you will get synthesis of DNA. And if you then um, uh, do a PCR, you, you, you will get non-specific um, amplification because the primers will have primed from sites where they normally wouldn't have bound to because the annealing temperature, I'd say at zero degrees, um, the primers will bind to anything. They're okay. binding each other, they're binding to non-specific DNA. So you, you can get you can get a background. The problem with background always is A, you can get a false positive, but also it can reduce the sensitivity of the assay itself. Right. And and is hot start now in widespread use? Is that yes, I think hot start is, is, is the standard way of doing things. Oh, okay. Uh, you also talked about a one-step versus two-step process. Yeah. I don't know if you can briefly describe yes. well, that. that's a very fundamental distinction um, I, I think um, the main difference is as follows um, if you looking to detect a pathogen you're normally interested in detecting one or two or five or ten different pathogens so what you do in a one-step reaction is you you the, the priming of the um, RNA to make cDNA is carried out by a specific primer, I a primer specific whatever target you're interested in. Mm-hmm. So uh, a one-step reaction, uh, in general, you mix the RT and the TAC polymerase in the same tube with both forward and reverse primers. Right. There is a method that uses uh, a different enzyme which can do both, but we won't talk about it, it confuses the issue. So what happens then is, you give it uh, a minute or five minutes or 10 minutes at say 50 degrees, which allows your RNA specific primer to bind to the RNA. The reverse transcriptase then comes along and uh, extends that primer. And after X number of minutes, you heat the whole thing to 95 degrees. This then inactivates the RT, activates the polymerase, and you start your PCR. Mm-hmm. So that sounds this good. Has the, this has the advantage. <laughs> It all happens in a single tube. It uh, takes much less time, and it, it, it is fairly easy to implement. The problem is that, as we talked about RNA structure earlier, um, if the primers aren't well designed, the RNA primer particularly isn't well designed. The assay can be um, 
uh, not as sensitive as you might want it to be. Also, if you want to look at tens or hundreds of different targets in your sample, mm. you, you may run into problems. So that's where you might use a two-step reaction. And the difference between a one-step and a two-step is that in a two-step reaction, you can prime with specific primers, but what you tend to do is you use very short, random oligonucleotides. They will prime anywhere off the RNA. Mm -hmm. And you, you, the first reaction then is only an RT step where you use random priming to generate lots and lots of cDNA. And you then take an aliquot of that uh, and put that into PCR reaction with your PCR-specific primers. So what it means is in, in, with, with the one-step reaction, you have a one shot at doing your assay. Mm -hmm. With the two-step reaction, you, you, you retain your initial pool of cDNA and can you go back to that as often as you like uh, until it's all gone, obviously. The main advantage is that, uh, A, you have more sample to work with, but B, the primer can be optimized for the PCR rather than for the RT and the PCR. So you mm. can get more sensitivity. But again, okay. in real life, it's not as straightforward as that. Sometimes it works the other way. Sometimes the one step is more sensitive. Sometimes the two step is more sensitive. It's just, again, something that is not predictable. Okay. Um, one issue I, I meant to um, talk about earlier was um, the length of the probes and the primers. And, and is, you know, how do you choose um, something that's long enough to be unique? Uh, like, is there a problem where people use uh, primers or probers that are either too short or too long? Do either of those cause problems? Yes. Um, uh, most people would use a program to design their oligo. So, for example, I, I, I have a program which is called uh, Beacon Designer uh, and Allele ID. From a, uh, 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 which allows me to design my primers. Now, most primers will be somewhere between 18 and 23 nucleotides long. Okay. The problem tends not to be the uh, length of the primer, but the fact that they haven't been designed with sufficient specificity so that they can bind to other things as well. Um, now, with, with bacteria and pathogens, that tends to be less the case because you have a fairly unique sequence to target. But obviously, if you're trying to distinguish between a standard coronavirus and the COVID-2, then you have to be very careful in designing your primers mm -hmm. uh, in terms of difference. The length itself doesn't, mm, doesn't make that much of a difference. I think if, if you're trying to make uh, the assay very, very specific and, and have a, a rather high annealing temperature, then you would tend to have longer primers. But then again, if you're designing primers against fungal targets, for example, these are very GC-rich. So they would be much shorter than a bacterial primer, which is tend to be AT rich. For example, for stream difficile, which causes you know a, a, a diarrhea and so on, mm -hmm. is a very rich bug. So your primers there would might be 25 to 28 nucleotides long because to get the correct annealing temperature. Whereas a fungal primer might only be 16 to 18 nucleotides long because it's very GC rich. So there's no general rule, but in, uh, there's no rule that works for everything. But in generally, try and be around about 20 nucleotides for a primer. And depending on what type of probe you use, you might use the probe will be somewhere between 18 and 25 nucleotides as well. Although there are some specific um, systems that use much shorter probes. Okay, well, that sounds like a, a highly specialized area that requires a lot of thought yeah. to get it right. 
Yes, yes. That, that, that is obviously the key issue. I've compared primers to the tires on a car. They, they, are, the, they are the thing that, that, that links the enzyme to its target. And if the primer hasn't been designed correctly, if there's any possibility of non-specificity, then that's where the whole thing then goes wrong. And the probe won't help you there. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, let's move on to the MIQE uh, guidelines. Mikey guidelines, yes. Mikey. Yeah, okay, mm -hmm. that's, that's easier to say. Um, so these are basically about reporting, um, or, uh, I mean, uh, and you're saying that, uh, I mean, one of your criticisms is that most people are, are not following the guidelines and they're not reporting enough information that you can determine whether anything could have gone wrong um, with, with their work or you can't reproduce it or, like, what are the, I guess, what are the, what was the main motivation of the Mikey guidelines and, and what does it mean when they don't get followed? Right. Um, most people think that PCR is an easy thing to do because you take two primers, uh, uh, possibly an RT and a PCR, and that's it. Um, a long time ago, now, 18 years ago, I was involved with the autism MMR um, measles um, controversy. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll recall that um, there was some suggestion that giving the triple vaccine um, caused uh, autism and that this was mm. linked, to, linked to the measles uh, component. Right. And um, some of the data, or in fact, the only real data published on this used RTQPCR. Right. And um, I was brought in to look at the, the um, data that underlined a couple of papers that were published and uh, lots of unpublished data that were presented to the court. And it became clear to me very, very quickly that uh, the people doing these experiments had uh, got everything wrong they could have got wrong. They, their designs were incorrect, their protocols were incorrect, the, uh, the way they reported the data were incorrect, the invitation, everything was wrong. So that was back in 2005. Uh, and then 2007, um, we had the, uh, uh, the, the trial in Washington, D.C., and uh, I decided, and, and, okay, so meanwhile, um, we had gathered a group of people um, who were interested in PCR uh, worldwide, well, Europe and, um, and the United States, and um, we had had several meetings uh, uh, to discuss real-time PCR. And it occurred to me that what we really needed was um, a set of guidelines that people could look to, firstly, to, to develop their own um, protocols, um, know what was important when you design a primer, a probe, what, what, when, how you extract your RNA. Uh, but secondly, also, um, to uh, allow people, when they publish their data, to report the things that are important for a reviewer or, or a reader to, to look at the technical quality of, of what these uh, papers were reporting to see whether um, the results were real. Um, and also, um, one of the things about scientific um, papers is the reason you publish is to try and uh, or let other people see what you've done so if need be, they can repeat your results. Mm -hmm. And so if you looked at papers, if you look at papers, very often if you have a, a paper that uses both um, ELISAs um, or uh, Western blotting and PCR, then the 
tissue culture and the ELISA and the um, Western blots are described in the greatest of details. And right. then there's a thing that says, and we did qPCR. <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't even give you the primers or anything like that? Often you don't get the primers, and very often they're wrong. The sequence of the primers are wrong. But you don't get, you have no idea how they do their RT, no idea how their PCR. Um, and then usually QP or QPCR is usually um, reported as a, a relative quantification to something. And that relative quantification is more often than incorrect as well. So um, that's what led us then to, to, to publish initially for PCR back in 2009 for QPCR, and then for digital PCR in 2013, these Mikey guidelines. Uh, incidentally, okay. we are now discussing doing a similar sort of thing for uh, the uh, testing of coronavirus. Oh, okay. Well, that uh, I think, judging by what I've seen, that might be worthwhile. Um, <laughs> um, so, so, so basically, the Mikey guidelines help tell you how you should do RT-PCR, and uh, they they also tell you how you should report it, so that people can evaluate what you're doing, and then they can, uh, if they want, they could try to reproduce it as close as possible to what you actually did. Yes, yes. And you report some data that, that indicates that when um, replication of experiments occurs, you have something like a 10 to 30 fold difference in, in, in quantification. That, um, you, can, you can have, you, you can yes. have, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, okay, and, and it, it kind of surprises me that people would publish the wrong primers. I mean, that seems like a kind of a secretarial job, right? Like just copy and paste the yeah. list of primers that you must have stored somewhere <laughs> because uh, because you, you had to decide what they were in the first place. I, I don't understand how people get that wrong. It, yes, I, th I think that that is probably the, the, the correct interpretation. If I was a conspiracy theorist, as some people are, then I'd say some people might publish the wrong sequence on purpose. <laughs> people don't know what they've been doing. Oh, that that does seem a bit yes, uh, it does seem a bit conspiratorial. But it's it's like it's hard to understand because I mean I think if you if you spend a lot of time defining your primer sequence, you you have to store it in a file, right? Everybody has everything stored in a file, and you have to send it to the person who's going to generate it. And uh, you have to make sure that every time you do this, you do it right. Because if you, if you tell somebody to generate the wrong primer, you just messed up your own experiment. Um, I, I think uh, one explanation is people often get the five prime, three prime, three prime, five prime orientation wrong. So that primers are in the wrong orientation. That that's then happens quite frequently. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, um, okay. I've had examples where part of the primer was left off. So um, they only have published part of the primer sequence. Why, again, I do not know. Um, sometimes it's a completely different primer and you have no idea why, how they came up with that particular primer. But <laughs> right. yeah, there's all kinds of reasons. I expect it's, um, it's uh, sloppiness rather than anything else. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that can explain a lot of things. Okay, so let's move on to sequencing. And, and one of the confusions I have is, is, are you sequencing the RNA or the complementary DNA? Um, so in RT-PCR, in, in qPCR, in digital PCR, you don't sequence at all. Right. There's no sequencing involved. The only thing that's involved is you amplify your product and you use your probe to detect that product. Mm -hmm. So um, 
because you have a specific probe um, that binds only to the sequence, or in theory binds only to the sequence that you're trying to amplify, you are convinced that you're getting the right thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have a single RT-PCR with a single probe, you get a single sequence. Or you, you get a single target that mm -hmm. you can amplify and detect. Sequencing is quite different because there you um, can look at um, any RNA you like uh, and uh, you don't need to have a, for PCR you just know what you're looking for. With sequencing you don't need to know what you're looking for. You just generate lots and lots of sequence, which is sequence from a cDNA, but uh, that then can be related back to the RNA itself. Right, so, right. So, so you do convert your RNA into cDNA, and again, that is the, a critical point because again, you've got this RT problem here. But if you're simply trying to see what messages or what pathogens are present, then you can do an RT-PCR reaction and feed that into a sequencing reaction and get lots and lots of information about what is present. Right, and you need the PCR step in order to generate enough material to do the sequencing, enough material, right? Yeah, it's called a library. You prepare a library. Of, of your of your for your target yes um okay um i think i have um come to the end of my questions i can't believe how mm -hmm. much we got through today and i i appreciate your patience with somebody who doesn't know near as much about <laughs> this subject as you do is there anything else you'd like to add that that is really important that we didn't manage to get to well, only that I think there is a real reproducibility problem in, in science in general and certainly biological, biomedical science in particular. And um, it is something that is just not acknowledged enough. And mm. um, it looks as though, you know, the editors of major journals aren't really that interested in, in making sure that the papers they publish um, are technically sound. Because there are so many examples now where some, you know, high-profile papers published that then needs to be retracted. The journal gets its its publicity. Uh, they are commercial enterprises, and um, I think um, as long as they uh, they can publish something that gets a press attention, they're quite happy. Um, well, it seems like there's a bit of a feeding frenzy right now. Like I noticed that it doesn't take very long to get a paper published in like the New England Journal of Medicine or. JAMA or something yeah. like that. If you've got something hot on the coronavirus, it's, it's well, just a matter yes, that, of a couple of days. That is true. That is true as well. Yes, but it also depends who's publishing and what institution you come from. There is lots of things that are, are wrong about our present publication system in, in biology. Um, but uh, that's just something I would highlight. And it looks as though something like RT-PCR, which everyone thinks is easy, is particularly mm -hmm. prone to pro problems. Well, I, okay. There's, so there's a couple of questions sort of more philosophical questions so if you have a nice shiny machine and and you put samples in it and the machine does everything for you and at the end it produces a graph or a number or yes. um, you know something like that does does that lead you to believe that it's it's simpler and more precise than it might actually be yes absolutely okay. yes and okay the second thing is we live in a digital world since like the 1950s. We've had computers and everybody knows that computers are binary. And really the only thing in biology that is digital that I can think of is DNA and RNA in that mm -hmm. is a code of four different bases. And 
And so, you know, if you if you have the sequence of DNA or RNA in a computer, you can generate that RNA or DNA, whereas you probably couldn't do that for a protein because of the yes. confirmation and things like that. So does that lead us to believe that we have to focus on RNA and DNA and and ignore like all of the uncertainties around the actual manipulation of RNA and DNA, which is very much chemical and biological? Yes, it has been in the past, certainly. I think it has got better. But I think we used to do RNA uh, quantification because we could do it. We couldn't easily do protein quantification. Mm. Um, so that was certainly something. Nowadays, I think most papers would, or any good journal would require not just an RNA-based uh, result, but also some kind of protein um, um, validation. Um, it's slightly different, of course, for pathogen papers, because there you have an RNA. So you're not you're looking at gene expression, you're looking at the presence of absence of a pathogen. But if you're trying to do um, uh, um, studies on, on the biology of a virus, then you definitely have to have both RNA and DNA data. And also bear in mind, you know, we, we used to think there's um, mRNA, ribosomal RNA, and perhaps transferRNA. Now we know there's all kinds of other RNAs, including antisense and large nucleus, or large and small and micro and God knows what else. So um, it, is, it is extremely complex. And having a single RT-QPCR test to detect something is great, but needs to be put into the context of a whole lot of other uh, experiments that are carried out to, to validate and perhaps explain what the result is. So uh, unfortunately, you know, that means you have to do things uh, much more slowly than we are given. You know, we all the pressure to publish and, and, and get results out. And that it, it doesn't help that, that we have that, that some of our results then tend to be incorrect. Yes, yes, uh, agreed. I think we live in a society where speed is uh, sometimes the most important uh, parameter uh, over top of accuracy and <laughs> things like yeah. that. I would just like to thank you for taking a considerable amount of time to discuss this issue, which I, I think is very important in the modern world. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for, for asking me. To, to, it's great that I could uh, explain some things to you, and I hope it helps somebody understand a little bit more about the current problems we're, we're seeing with testing, which are uh, considerable, but uh, a lot of myself imposed, particularly in the UK. I'm not sure what's happening in Canada, but but I see in the United States as well. It's, it it just is mind-boggling how 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 we ended up in a situation like this. Yes, yes. There's many confusions uh, about this whole thing, and I think everybody's off doing their own thing. And um, I, what I, I find particularly amazing, I'm not what it's like, it's like with you, but people refer to PCR as an antigen test. So our, our, our government ministers talk about antigen tests. Our BBC uh, report talks antigen tests. It has nothing to do with antigen tests. It's well, just well, okay. lack of understanding. Well, one more question, and maybe you, you, you know this. Abbott announced that they had a five-minute molecular test for the coronavirus. Do you have any idea what that might be? It can't be PCR, right? Like five minutes is just impossible. Well, it's not impossible, but um, um, it, it could be a, a lamp, uh, so an isothermal. Um, or it could be a lateral flow device, so protein-based. Okay. okay. So it could. It could. If you have the the um, the antigen bound to, to a lateral flow device, to put a drop of blood on it, then I mean, if there's antibodies present, that could be detected in five minutes. Right. But it said a molecular test, so that to me that yeah, sounded like I don't know what that means because I mean everything yeah, exactly. is a molecule. <laughs> right. um, um, 
Is, is it a, 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 a nasal swab they're using or is it a blood sample, you know? I think it would be a nasal swab because it was specific okay. for the coronavirus. Okay, it could be a lamp, uh, which is an isothermal amplification method, which yeah. possibly could work in five minutes. Okay, I, I, okay. Well, maybe one day we'll find out. I've been, I I'm have sure not yet got any technical information <laughs> on that. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Well, time for a tiny little bit of feedback. Lino via email wrote, I love your work on the coronavirus craze going on right now. Katie Awadu, a former guest, thank you for having the brilliant Dr. David Rasnick on your show. Also on that show, Janet wrote via email, Thanks, your latest podcast was really good, and I've passed it along. Mark, via email, just listened to the radio program with David Rasnick. Fantastic, thank you. Just like I thought, false positives. It really does make you wonder about whether there are genuinely sinister motives behind this whole episode. Mark went on to talk about air pollution, and my thoughts are that both Wuhan and Lombardy, Italy, do have big problems with air pollution, but it can only be the cause of increased disease if we can show that the air pollution is worse this uh, year than previous years, which is certainly possible. I do not have information on that. Um, but if anybody does have information on how the air pollution rates in those two uh, areas of the world have changed, that would be uh, very useful, and, and it could be a factor. Lee, via email, first and foremost, keep up the good work. A small correction, you said to Dr. Rasnick that UK doctors are not seeing mental health patients. This isn't true. I'm a UK psychiatrist and still, still seeing patients. We may in fact see more due to the stress caused by the alleged COVID-19 pandemic. Anyway, I came across your work after Duisburg questioned the HIV AIDS paradigm, and what you say makes a lot of sense. I've been dipping in and out of your podcasts, but more so now. Please keep educating us on the PCR. Well, hopefully this show helped with that. Uh, please let me know whether the discussion of PCR was enlightening or you just found it um, confusing. I think I know a lot more after reading Buston's papers and talking to Professor Buston as well. Thank you for listening to episode 251 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for a future guest, please email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Commit to monthly donations of any amount to infectiousmyth on patreon.com or liberapay.com. Until next week, thank you and goodbye.